Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Somos Community Care, a network of over 2,500 New York City-based doctors dedicated to ensuring culturally competent care quality for those who need it the most. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and another in our series on race in America. Latinos have been among the communities hit hardest by the coronavirus pandemic, which revealed long existing health disparities in the United States. Today, we're gonna focus on the impact of those health disparities on Latino communities. Javier Becerra is the 25th Secretary of Health and Human Services, and he joins me now. Mr. Secretary, welcome to Washington Post Live. Jonathan, thanks for having me. And by the way, thanks for everything you've done. Oh, well, th- well, thank you very much um, for whatever I've done. I thank you. Well, let's dig into the let's dig into the health disparities with the secretary experienced by Latino communities. First, how have barriers such as a lack of pharmacies, hospitals and transportation affected health outcomes before and during the pandemic? Well, Jonathan, as you know, if you live in uh, a food desert or if you live in a medical service desert, it makes it far more difficult for you and your family to to get the type of services and have the type of health that would be possible if all those things within, were within your reach. Some cases you could live in uh, a big city and be just blocks away from a nice hospital, but you just can't afford it. You, you may as well live in a desert. Uh, and so uh, that has produced results which today we recognize as social determinants of health. So you grow up poor, uh, that's one of the determinants of what your health will be moving forward. If you grow up without access to health insurance, that's also gonna determine a great deal how your health will look once you're older. And so no one should be surprised when some 40 or 50 year old presents, more than likely if you're coming from a community of color, your health isn't as good as someone who's had access to health all his or her life, who've had the right foods available in grocery stores around the block. And so those are the kinds of things that happen when you have those disparities that persist in America and and pandemic COVID-19 really exposed those Mm -hmm. far beyond. So even though most of us knew they were there, now everyone knows. Well, and then that anticipates the next question I was gonna ask, and that was how has inadequate access to primary care uh, physicians hindered testing, treating and educating patients about COVID-19 and the vaccines? Well, it's it's like trying to fi- uh, fly a, a jet plane without having gone to the courses on how to fly to begin with. If you, if you try to go all the way from the start, you're never going to succeed. So you can't expect communities who haven't had access to have the best outcomes. And the more we prevent communities from having ready, readily accessible access to the things we need, uh, we're gonna continue to suffer. The, the name that comes to my mind most is Diamante Driver, a young boy in the state of Maryland who had a toothache. 
but because his parents didn't have insurance, didn't have much money, they, you know, you, you, you let the, your, your child go as long as he can. Well, that toothache turned, turned into an infection, an abscess. And before you know it, that young man actually died because what started off as a toothache became an infection. That's what happens when you don't have health insurance. That's an extreme case, but it happens. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, I mean, the access to uh, health care and insurance is one thing, but in its public education campaigns, how has your department um, tackled language barriers um, that can affect Latinos and other communities in terms of accessing health care, accessing the vaccines? Well, we've broken down those barriers, Jonathan. Uh, we, we understand how important it is to communicate. And you who are in me media know how important it is to communicate often, repetitively, in order to get a message across. And so that's what we've done. We dedicated a lot of resources to get messages out. We don't wait for people to come to us. We go to them. When it came time for people to enroll in the Affordable Care Act uh, insurance marketplaces, we didn't wait for people to go onto the website and look for us. No, we went out to the community and, and make sure we got to all those communities that didn't get access to care easily and haven't always signed up for coverage under the Affordable Care Act. And this time we had a really good product to sell because the president made possible through the American Rescue Plan reduced rates for quality health insurance, so much so that for many people, including folks in the black and brown community, we were able to offer them health insurance coverage, quality health insurance coverage for less than $10 a month. You can't even go see a movie for $10 in one movie. And so it was a great deal. Unfortunately, we got a lot of folks who, who bought in. Yeah, Mr. Secretary, nearly one in four uh, home care workers is Latino. Two in five Latinos are caregivers for family members. So what steps is HHS taking to help the care workforce moving forward? Well, we're making major investments, Jonathan, in home and community-based services because we know how critical having access to good care is for any family. But if you're a low-income family, even more so. And oftentimes we know that some of these families rely on relatives or close friends to provide some of that care. It used to be done without being able to be reimbursed or compensated. More and more we're realizing that these folks are providing indispensable care, not just, that, just to that family member or friend, but to America. Because otherwise those folks would be, end up in institutions where taxpayers probably would have to pay a good portion of that bill. So we are making a major investment in home and community-based services because we see how important it is. And I say that personally as the caregiver for my father uh, before he perished, he, my mom and, and he moved into my home four years before he, he left us uh, on New Year's Day uh, 2020. And we were with him and we were essentially his uh, hospice caregivers for the most part, uh, those last six months when he was less mobile, unable to care for himself. So there is such value in it. And I say that personally, Everyone should have the opportunity to let their loved ones live out their lives in dignity. Well, Mr. Secretary, my condolences to you um, on the passing of your father. It just makes me wonder, how, how did that experience um, uh, impact the way you approach your job as the Secretary of Health and Human Services? You know, Jonathan, I tell folks, if you want to know where, where a leader is going to take you, look at where that leader's come from. And for me, I came from a family where my parents did everything they could for me. They couldn't do a lot because they didn't have a lot of money, but they did enough that I felt like I, I thought I was middle class until I started college and I saw what 
you know, middle class folks really how they lived. And the the beauty of that is that I've learned that it was not easy and it was not free. And for me now, it is so important. And so when my father was in his last years, his last stages of life, I, it was a no brainer. We, we were going we to be there. Actually, I learned it best, quite honestly, through my wife and her parents, because she's got a larger family, family of eight kids. They were there every moment for their two parents. And I, I had never seen death with such dignity as I saw when Carolina, my wife's mother, passed. And I said to myself, if ever my parents get to that stage, that's what I want. You had grandkids, great-grandkids in the house as, as my wife's mother was getting ready to pass. Everyone was going through. It almost was like a party. And because no one felt like it was a mournful time, none of the kids were afraid to see their great grandma. Uh, that's the kind of thing you want because there was true love there. Mm -hmm. And we should make that available. We shouldn't say, oh, no, no, uh, we're not going to do that for you because we don't want to reimburse you for some of the costs that you've had. Instead, send them off to an institution where we're paying thousands of dollars that most people can't afford. And therefore, we as taxpayers have to cover. It makes no sense. Um, you're also the son, you're, you're the son of immigrants. And I'm also wondering how has, how is that part of your life story influencing the way you go about your job at HHS? So no barrier going to get in our way, uh, nothing we can't accomplish. And that comes because when you're the son of immigrants, you have uh, optimism running in your DNA and uh, you learn the hard way. Uh, but you realize every time you get to climb to that next stage of the mountain, how beautiful it can be. And so uh, I take with me those stories, those experiences, and I try to make sure that I in, don't let others miss those opportunities that should be there for everyone. And so uh, I was fortunate to have people who work very hard to give me a chance. I'm the first in my family to get, the, get a four-year degree. Uh, I am the first one in my family to have a chance to be, get behind in front of a camera. And I will tell you, uh, this opportunity should be available to anybody, regardless of your income, where you live, or what your immigration status is. Mm -hmm. So we are in a much different place um, today than we were two years ago, or even three months ago. Do you believe we finally entered a less dangerous phase in the, in the pandemic? Well, Jonathan, we're certainly in a less dangerous phase, but there's still danger. When you still have some 2,000 Americans dying every day from COVID, you still have uh, several thousand uh, in hospitals every day because of COVID, uh, some 60, 70,000 cases every, uh, every day because of COVID. You're not out of the woods, but we are in a far different place than we were a year ago, uh, a month ago, even a week ago. And so we just got to continue to see the improvement the president last week in the State of the Union made that very clear. And we're just going to continue to work because we know everyone wants to get back to those days where it was easy to go to work, kids could play at school, and we all felt pretty good about hugging each other. And so that's what we want to see, but we got work to do. And we have a responsibility to take care of each other. You know, late last month, Governor Gavin Newsom issued an endemic plan for California, your home state. You used to be the attorney general there. Um, the White House announced on Wednesday uh, an endemic plan of its own, declaring that shutdowns and school closures are over. Your thoughts on those moves? Well, it, it, it's a sign that we have to say something very important to the American people. Thank you. Thank you for paying attention, for getting vaccinated. For wearing those masks as aggravating as sometimes it could be, of testing when you needed to, 
of social distancing, of taking care of your kids, washing your hands, doing all the things that the scientists have told us will work. Thank you for that. And to those who haven't yet, please join us, help us. Let's all be responsible. Let's do what we know works so we can really say that COVID is behind us. Um, you've recently announced a new mental and behavioral health campaign to deal with the long-term impact of COVID. What's the goal? Well, as I said, the president has made it very clear, we're leaving no one behind. And that uh, he, he could have been a, a member of my family saying that, we don't leave people behind. You could have been part of that army unit. You know, you don't leave anybody behind. And so when it comes to what we're doing here, it's we're not leaving anyone behind. And so we just got to continue the work. Uh, we know what we need to do. And we're going to make sure that those who are suffering from things like long COVID, uh, those who are experiencing mental distress because of the situation, maybe you lost your job, we're going to be there. Uh, we're helping our state partners, our local partners, make sure we get put resources out there for the healthcare workforce. They've been resilient. Uh, many of them had had a vacation day in a long time. We're going to make sure that they know we've got their backs because uh, they've been there for us. And so we're going to do what we can. We have several programs that we're initiating. And if Congress passes a budget that includes the president's request, we'll have more money to deal with mental health needs. Uh, and we're going to do whatever we can to let people know that it's important that we treat mental health the same as we would treat physical health. You know, one of the things I should have asked you this earlier, but Talk about the difficulty over the last two years of building trust around public health measures against the backdrop of misinformation, political division, and even people questioning science, even though science is constantly changing. Yeah, that, that's a great question because the misinformation has been out there fast and furious, and it's made it difficult, especially for communities where the information they get sometimes is hard to come by or it's not clear who they can trust. And so we've tried very hard. That's where I mentioned earlier that we don't wait for folks to come to us, we go to them. And we use trusted voices to make sure we're communicating, whether it's the, the priest, whether it's the school teacher, whether it's the soccer coach, uh, we're gonna use those who really do connect with families because we want them to know that we want to include them. I constantly have to say, especially in Spanish language uh, press, that when it comes to the vaccines, President Biden wants to make those accessible to everyone free of charge because too many folks in communities that are disadvantaged, they find it hard to believe that they're getting something of quality free of charge. They're used to getting something uh, not of quality for a high price when they go into those uh, ripoff stores that they're only the only thing they can find in the neighborhood. And so when somebody offers you something really good free of charge, you wonder. And so what we have to do is just communicate over and over that we actually got a great product for you that can actually save your life and it's free. And the more we let folks know, the more it changes. And by the way, in May of 2021, uh, about two thirds of white Americans had received at least one shot of the vaccine on COVID. Black and brown uh, communities, about 54% or so, substantially behind the white community. Beginning of this year, We'd, we'd change that a lot. White Americans, about 83%, 84%. Black Americans, about 82, 83%. Latinos, about 84%. We worked hard at that. It was no accident. 
Uh, and those are great stats to to uh, learn about, Mr. Secretary. We have time for one more question, and I got to ask you this because uh, the Washington Post and other news outlets um, have been writing about it. Well, how do you respond to the reports that say that you have taken too passive a role in the pandemic? Is that criticism fair? You know, my my dad used to say. It's not what you say, it's what you do. My dad was a construction worker and it made no difference to anyone, his, for, his foreman or the company owner, what he said he would do is what he did. And I gotta tell you, my dad was one of the best builders America's ever seen. Uh, he was never a, a loud guy. He didn't speak English very well. He was always kind of shy about that. Uh, all, all I learned in my, all my life was perform, get it done. Whether it's laying that, uh, uh, asphalt for that highway, or was building that concrete driveway for your neighbor, you get it done. And that's what we're going to do. And fortunately, uh, we have a president who lets me get things done. I'm going to continue to do them so long as I have an opportunity, because that's what I learned when I grew up. You, you know, you use a, a, a terrific word there, and that was perform. And I wonder to your mind, as someone who's been in politics for, for years, um, in Washington, do you think there's too much emphasis put on perform in terms of performance for the cameras, uh, that as long as someone is performing for the cameras, they must be doing the job? Yeah, it's the show horse versus the workhorse. And I'll tell you, here's where my mom gives me the best advice. She said, she always tells me, remember Jimmy. She's always, always telling me about the story about this kid, Jimmy, who would always go to church, always religiously go to church. And he'd always say to the Lord, hey, Lord, I'm here. I uh, just wanted to check in with you. And he'd always do that and always do that. And some of his friends would ask, well, you know, why do you do that? You don't need to go to church all the time. And he'd say, yeah, well, that's what I do. And of course, as he aged in life and as he was getting ready to leave this place, he had the Lord come to him and say, hey, Jimmy, I'm with you today. And so she always tells me that story. This is a woman who still prays the rosary every night. and all I know is that if I do things the right way, some will, will recognize it. You don't have to be a show horse. Just do your work. All right, that's actually kind of a, a mantra that I try, to, I try to live by. Just do the work. One more question for you, Mr. Secretary. The Post reported it can sometimes be unclear who makes final decisions or is in charge of implementing new initiatives. What's your response? Oh, there's no doubt. The guy at the top, Joe Biden, is the, he's the president. He makes the call. Uh, when it comes to COVID, if you're asking about COVID, he set up a team before he even took office uh, officially uh, to deal with COVID. Uh, Jeff Seintz has been the coordinator out of the White House for that. Uh, at HHS, I'm the secretary. We execute on much of what the president wants done. We are, we're the team that has NIH, FDA, CDC, uh, our H-Corp program is the, the logistics operation that makes sure that those masks, that those tests, those vaccines get where they need to go. But no doubt, the quarterback is in the White House. Javier Becerra, 25th Secretary of Health and Human Services. Mr. Secretary, we are out of time. Thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thanks, John. Coming up, the mayor of Santa Ana, California, Vicente Sarmiento. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. 
The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. The pandemic has not only devastated communities of color over the past two years, but it's also shined a bright light on health inequities, particularly in Latino communities across the U.S. I'm Ruth Umo, editor at Fortune, and my two guests today have made it their mission to get to the bottom of this issue by combining findings and best practices gained in and out of the pandemic to build a national model for better health for lower-income communities of color. I'm joined by the chairman and co-founder of SOMOS, Dr. Ramon Tayaj, and co-founder of SOMOS, a noted Latino social movement leader, designer, and philanthropist, Henry R. Munoz III. Welcome to you both. Let's kick things off. Welcome, welcome. Let's kick things off with you, Dr. Tayaj. Let me start by asking you about your new role. Uh, a few weeks ago, New York City Mayor Eric Adams named you one of the co-chairs of his new COVID-19 uh, Recovery Roundtable and Health Equity Task Force. Can you talk to us about your goals for this task force and the role health equity plays in moving New York City and really the entire country past the pandemic toward an endemic? Thank you, Ruth. As the co-chair of New York City Health Equity Force, we are working with nearly 40 very important experts in the area of healthcare, education, hospitality, and even homeless services. Leaders who truly know their communities and have the skills and talent to get things done. The task force is focused on truly diverse partnerships and bringing a model not just for New York. We believe it will work for the entire country. We need to learn from that. We are doing it by addressing the problems that already are affecting Latino Americans and many poor Americans on a daily basis. For instance, in New York City, our public housing developments are full of mall, lead, and below living standards. These are driving factors that led to so many decades of diabetes, hypertension, childhood obesity, and overall asthma, conditions brought on by poverty. So what this task force is trying to do is that on the country recovery must be focused on in improving total condition. Healthcare can only by itself. As SOMOS, for example, we have reinvented healthcare in the most vulnerable communities, focusing on preventive care with community doctors. This means we are addressing conditions before they become emergencies. Let me say this to you. If COVID-19 has taught us something, is that we can no longer ignore all the inequities that were there for many years and still here. That change must happen. Only that way we can call this a recovery. Preventive care for me is the key for the future. On this topic of recovery, let me pass the mic to you, Henry. You have designed as many social and political movements as you have designed uh, university campuses, parks, and public facilities. Now, you're using those same skills to design a major healthcare intervention. What have you found in talking with Latino voters uh, about their healthcare concerns? And subsequently, what can we learn from that? That's an important question. You know, one of the things that happens in our community is that we fall through the cracks of data and research. But we at SOMOS have been polling and collecting research since the very earliest days of this pandemic. And the story that it tells is that things have not gotten better for our community. 37% of us during this time of the pandemic have gone without insurance, which means we have no access. 67% of us don't just believe that there's barriers to healthcare, we actually believe that there is racism 
in healthcare in a very complex system. 22% of us have delayed treatment that we need. Can you imagine the impact that it has on cancer treatment, for example? And here's the saddest number. Only a third of us today have access to a primary care physician, the very building block of preventative care, as Ramon just said. So I think the lesson for all of us is that we shouldn't take, nobody should take us for granted, that we need to be heard and that the roadmap for this midterm election and in fact for the future health of this country is through the Latino community. Those numbers, those stats you shared are, are quite grim and quite damning as well. Uh, Dr. Tayaj, you and the thousands of doctors in the SOMOS network are on the ground in low-income communities every day. What concerns are you and your doctors hearing from their patients? Well, let me tell you, I'm being in Washington Heights, a poor middle-class neighborhood for over 20 years as a medical practitioner. The see and see now, all that long, he hasn't gotten better, as a matter of fact. They're getting worse. The resources that have been used to improve the health care of our communities are not allocated properly. I'll give you an example. They don't address poverty or total health. This is why the pandemic hit us so hard, and so many people died during this pandemic. As SOMOS, we have were at that point the only one ready to go and to act. We were looking for solutions. If we don't focus on prevention, nothing will change really. Our society will continue, continue to be sick. For me, prevention is the solution. That's what we want policymakers to focus on. As we work together to rebuild from the pandemic, we have to combat better than we were. And our country, I believe, deserves that. We can combat to the same. Henry, let's end by looking to the future. What do you want policymakers to know about how to improve health equity for Latinos and frankly, for all struggling Americans who identify as people of color? I want them to understand that the health of the Latino community is the health of the United States of America. We're the fastest growing demographic group in this country. I don't want them to ignore these findings. I want them to listen. I want them to understand that it's important to put prevention in front of profit. I want to, them to understand that there can be a new model of healthcare, healthcare that is closer to the community, healthcare that is dependent upon the success of the primary care physician, that is delivered in language, that is delivered in culture, and that where people see themselves in the healthcare worker, I want them to understand that when the essential worker has the same quality of healthcare that the CEO has, then America will truly be healthy. That's what I want them to understand. And I think Ramon and the thousands of doctors who are part of the SOMOS have begun that work and are beginning to prove that there can be a new national model. It's great to see the both of you addressing these long-standing uh, systemic health disparities in the Latino community. Dr. Tiaj, Henry, thank you both for your time. Now back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. Again, another in our series on race in America, this time looking at health disparities in Latino communities. We continue the conversation on the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on Latino communities with Mayor Vicente Sarmiento of Santa Ana, California. Mayor Sarmiento, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hi, Jonathan, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Sure. So 
Talk about the demographics of your city, of Santa Ana, and how that factored into how you navigated the pandemic these last two years. Yeah, so, you know, our city is approximately 330,000 uh, in size and population, and close to 80% of the city is Latino um, uh, or Hispanic, and um, uh, more than 40% are foreign-born, so we have a lot of recent arrival immigrants here. Uh, and so, you know, we unfortunately suffered a lot of uh, losses and many people uh, who we lost here in the city as a result of sort of the perfect storm in this pandemic because we had uh, many families that live in, you know, overcrowded conditions because of, you know, just disparities in, in rent uh, and, and not being able to, you know, uh, 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 you know, live in single unit homes. And we also had many families that, uh, you know, are frontline essential workers and so couldn't uh, work uh, from home or virtually. And, and you also had people that, you know, had underlying health conditions pre-pandemic. So you had people that suffered from diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. So all these three factors just lent themselves to a proliferation and a spike in, uh, in, in coronavirus cases, but uh, more importantly, in a lot of loss of life. Uh, so we suffered about a thousand losses uh, here in, in Santa Ana, and these were, you know, neighbors, uh, relatives, friends, uh, people in the community that uh, uh, had close ties to everyone. So uh, it was pretty devastating on our community. How, I, I mean, I, I asked this of the secretary earlier about the impact of misinformation, disinformation, lack of trust, all sorts of issues that have gotten in the way of public officials uh, tackling the pandemic. How have you dealt with those very same issues at the local level as mayor of a city? You know, it's really challenging because I think a lot of our uh, community, because uh, many are monolingual Spanish speakers, right, um, get their news and get their information from their local uh, press sources. And what the city is tr is pushing out sometimes isn't as effective because it's done either in Spanish or excuse me, in English and not in uh, multi language efforts. That's something we've now changed and realized that you know, hitting send on an email and thinking that's the way you message to a community like ours uh, is not the way to uh, communicate. The way to communicate is embedding yourself in neighborhoods, talking to people and establishing that trust. So when you do uh, reach uh, uh, folks, they're able to have, you're able to have some credibility and being able to, to talk to somebody in their own, uh, you know, language of origin is huge, right? So, um, you know, we did battle some of the, um, you know, some of the media outlets that were uh, really proliferating not only misinformation, but dangerous information, uh, you know, and, and so and folks believe that because that's where they got their, uh, you know, their information. So that is something that was really challenging because not only are you, are, you know, we as government trying to inform and educate people and keep them safe and, uh, you know, provide science-based information, but you're trying to offset that with a counter narrative that is very, very uh, different and completely contrary to what we're trying to, uh, you know, uh, inform people with. You, know, you, you said in your answer about, you know, before hitting send on an email, making sure, like, is this the way we should be communicating? But what are you doing to support uh, residents who aren't on, say, social media? Uh, obviously, you have folks in your in your city who who don't speak English. How are you getting How are you getting messages across to them? Uh, also, folks who don't have access to health information. How, what are all the ways you are, are getting, or at least trying to get uh, health information, but also coronavirus specific information to the people of your city? 
Yeah, so it's not even um, uh, uh, solely an issue of language disparity, right? We're also talking about households that aren't even connected to the internet. So you have this, uh, you know, dual uh, uh, problem. So what we did during 2020 when vaccines weren't even available and, and weren't developed at that time, we, uh, we, we took our information and our resources and embedded ourselves in neighborhoods. So rather than having, you know, sites where people could go to because we knew people had transportation problems as well, we went to uh, more than 100 neighborhoods and, and took our mobile, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, trucks and resources and delivered, you know, uh, about 35,000 tests. And we delivered more than 300,000 uh, uh, face masks. So those are ways that we realized it is kind of going back to, you know, grassroots efforts, going back to talking to people, going door to door, because these are folks that, again, uh, need to have that, um, have that contact. So it was tricky because, again, this was prior to the, um, the delivery of the vaccine. Um, and, you know, we had many of our staff uh, going out and risking their lives, you know, having to go and, and, and communicate with our residents. But we knew that that was the only way we could effectively uh, communicate and provide resources because, again, we had problems and challenges with respect to, you know, just access to the internet, uh, problems and challenges with respect to language. Um, so we just felt that this was probably the most effective, al al although, you know, labor intensive way to do it. But I saw that other communities, once they saw us doing this, starting to emulate and, and replicate what we did here, uh, because it really was kind of going back to, um, you know, uh, sort of a uh, maybe, uh, you know, a grassroots, more uh, old, con uh, less conventional way to do it. But, um, mm -hmm. but look, a more effective way to do it, I believe. Mm -hmm. You know, last year, uh, your city got a two-year, $4 million grant from the Office of Minority Health to boost vaccination rates and access to accurate COVID-19 information in, uh, in hard-hit communities of color. Have you seen the impact uh, you hoped for from that funding? You know, I did. I, I think that is one uh, additional element that we had in addition to receiving rescue plan money. So I do need to give, a, you know, uh, you know, our thanks to, uh, you know, uh, President Biden and, uh, you know, uh, Secretary Becerra, because, you know, with, with the rescue plan money, that in addition to the, um, you know, the, the $4 million grant that we received from the Office of Minority Affairs, you know, we were, you know, at the height of the pandemic where Santa Ana was hardest hit, um, we had maybe, you know, one in four people testing positive. And this is, you know, prior to the vaccine being delivered. Um, uh, you know, and so we went through, you know, all the efforts that I just described. Um, and now we uh, have, you know, uh, vaccination rates in, in those same zip codes that were suffering losses of life, uh, you know, uh, upwards of 80%, 85%. So we now have some of the lowest positivity rate in our county. Um, so we are the county seat, uh, uh, you know, here in Orange, and we're uh, uh, 34 cities large. Um, you know, we probably are the most demographically different from Orange County, even though the county is considered, um, you know, one of the most affluent counties in the country. It's the fifth or sixth largest. But Santa Ana is, you know, sort of the core of that county. And we have some very different problems in our neighboring 33 cities. So, um, you know, we're real proud of that pendulum that we've been able to swing to the other side because, again, uh, it took a lot of hard work, but it was, you know, uh, labor intensive work, but it was work that we know now. Uh, not just for the pandemic, but for other issues 
having to deal with vital information to you know communities of color like ours, uh, immigrant communities and low income communities. So you have those three factors intersecting and we realize that you can't do things in an easy way. In other words, again, sending out an e-blast and expecting you know, people to be informed as a result of that. We really do need to do things in a very non-traditional, non-conventional way um, to have the most impact. You know, one thing that we, uh, before the pandemic, one thing we always knew was that there were disparities in healthcare, in access to healthcare. If you had uh, healthcare, uh, then disparities in the quality of care um, that you were able to get. And then COVID hits. And those disparities are now too big to ignore because of who's being impacted. I would love for you to talk about um, how those, those disparities manifested themselves in Santa Ana during the pandemic and what steps you've taken to try to address them as a result of, of COVID. Look, I'll, I'll give you some really specific examples. When, when the vaccine was, um, you know, being delivered, uh, you know, the state sent the vaccine inventory to the counties so the county could deliver them to the cities. Um, here in Santa Ana, uh, we knew that the epicenter of the, the uh, you know, the pandemic was here in our city. Unfortunately, vaccines were going to other parts of the county, uh, more affluent communities, uh, uh, you know, uh, more white communities. And that's when, you know, uh, I think the tide turned when everybody, uh, you know, especially me, Look, started sh uh, shouting at the top of my lungs. Uh, you know, we have to get the vaccine delivered to where the problem is. And so, uh, you know, as I said, many of our residents are uh, frontline essential workers that couldn't take time off. So they were still going out and doing domestic work, uh, working in, you know, restaurants and in, um, you know, hospitals and other places. So we knew that if we could curb, uh, you know, the, the, the spike in, in positivity here, we knew it would help the entire county, but the vaccine was going elsewhere. You know, Governor Newsom came and he delivered, uh, you know, a, a, a speech here when he kind of turned the tide and said he's going to he's going to stop delivering vaccine to counties that don't get them to the hardest hit communities. So that's where I saw things really change here in our city, in our county when that was said. But it looked it took, you know, uh, many of us, uh, you know, just uh, again, getting so frustrated that the logical step of bringing, uh, you know, delivering vaccine to you know, communities that were hardest hit wasn't being done. So we saw that as really a pivotal moment. But again, it shouldn't have to be that way. And for us, you know, we know that we don't have our own public health, uh, municipal uh, public health department. We rely on the county for delivery of care. Uh, they are the agency that's vested with that responsibility. What's unfortunate is that, you know, it's not an equitable way of delivering health care. So the second thing that we did with some of the rescue plan money that we uh, received is we're investing now in a feasibility study to see how our city can separate from the county and create its own public uh, municipal health care department. Mm -hmm. Because we know that we have such a unique demographic, such a you know difficult demographic to, uh, to, to, to identify, to work with. We know that we could do it really well. Uh, but again, I think this made us realize we had issues before the pandemic, but you know during the pandemic, it just magnified the disparity of uh, delivery of care. And then once the vaccines became available, one of the big topics of conversation in, in, in the country was about vaccine hesitancy. And it wasn't, you know, uh, a situation that was solely borne by communities of color. There, there are lots of people 
across all sorts of demographics in the United States who were hesitant to take the vaccine. But in Santa Ana, did you have to deal with, uh, on a large scale, num uh, large numbers of, your, of, uh, of the people who live in Santa Ana being unwilling initially to, to take the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, we, we still have some of that, right? I mean, even though we have much better numbers with respect to, you know, mm. uh, vaccination rates, we still have, you know, parts of our community that, um, you know, again, I think you were talking about trust. Sometimes I think, you know, it's, it's, it's hesitancy, but it's also misinformation that's proliferated to them. Um, and we see a lot of, um, you know, folks that are immigrants that, you know, are undocumented. And, uh, you know, they've been told that, you know, by taking the vaccine, you're going to be able, you're, you're, you're going to be tracked, they're going to be able to find you and, you know, and, and, and deport you based upon, you know, uh, you know, this vaccine. Well, all those things we've had to um, dispute, uh, we've had to clarify, but um, I think, you know, the first step in that is creating trust because, uh, you know, again, they're receiving this information from uh, news outlets that maybe not are not as credible. Um, you're receiving them from people that uh, you know aren't authorities and aren't public health professionals. So you know they're being told a lot of different things. And unfortunately, you know they um, you know our our undocumented and immigrant population doesn't have a trusted source of information. So that's where I think communities like ours uh, uh, need to connect need to be able to establish that relationship where, you know, all things being equal, they need to know that they can trust um, their local governments to be able to at least uh, protect them, provide accurate information so they can make informed decisions. Because again, it's not a matter of mandating or it's not a matter of forcing anybody because we understand there are beliefs that are deeply held, especially in, in immigrant communities um, that are faith-based and we completely respect that but it's a matter of that informed consent or informed decision that really is a challenge for many of us to be able to uh, mm -hmm. uh, establish that relationship with folks in the community. You mentioned Governor Newsom a, a moment ago, but late last month, the governor uh, issued an endemic plan for California. Uh, uh, the White House announced on Wednesday that um, an endemic plan of its own declaring shutdowns and school closures are over. I would love your thoughts on these moves. And what is your long-term strategy for Santa Ana living with COVID? Look, I believe, you know, uh, being responsible and being incremental in the way we transition out of this um, pandemic. So I do, you know, I do applaud the governor uh, and the White House for giving us steps that are forecasting how we can, you know, uh, move forward. I think for communities like Santa Ana, because I think uh, not all policies fit uh, all regions, right? And and so I think for for those of us that have dealt with this in such an acute and such an uh, you know uh, uh, strong way that and, and and been so impacted, I think we want to take slow steps out of this. Uh, we don't want to just say, okay, it's over. This is an endemic at this point, and let's you know just forget about all the. Uh, protocols and all the protective steps that we took. So for me as mayor, I mean, my hope is that we can transition out. We're seeing that, you know, our uh, schools are now opening up. We see now that, um, you know, a, a lot of our facilities now are available to, to, to the public to enjoy. And we want to balance that because, you know, uh, Jonathan, one thing I would tell you is that what's hurt me is that I've seen many families and, and especially, you know, children 
who've been, uh, you know, uh, impacted emotionally and psychologically by just not being able to connect with peers, not being able to connect with, um, you know, sort of daily life routines of being in parks, playing, uh, you know, uh, with their neighbors and other kids. Those things have long-term impacts, so that has to be offset and balanced with being uh, protective about making sure nobody uh, continues to get, uh, you know, ill from COVID. But uh, but we do have to find a way that um, our families, especially those families that we have in Santa Ana, that don't have many other outlets and they're living in small spaces, uh, you know, we want them out, uh, hopefully playing in parks, uh, you know, being able to do things safely, but uh, also transitioning them from this very sequestered um, you know, condition that they've been living with and to now being able to just develop and grow uh, into young adults. So, uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, final question for you. You were elected in, in 2020. Uh, so you've been sort of halfway through your, your first term as mayor, right? Actually, uh, we have your terms, so we're at the, almost at the end of my first term. Okay, so almost in your first serve, asking the question because I want to get to the larger, quick uh, question: What lessons have you learned as mayor, guiding a city, guiding your city through a global pandemic? Look, the first lesson I think I, I you know, learned is that uh, when you're in a crisis, you can't do things in a simple way. You can't do things that seem expedient, that seem efficient you really have to step back and realize that, you know, nobody signs up for this type of work um, as mayor, uh, you know, because normally we're doing dealing with infrastructure and filling potholes and making sure people's, you know, street lights are, are operating. But when you're dealing with people who are uh, facing loss of life, loss of a loved one, and just a crisis, uh, what you have to do is just step back and evaluate and realize we have to do everything we possibly can to provide accurate information, resources, and if it takes going into neighborhoods, walking door to door, uh, those are things that now I take away as mayor and hopefully our entire city realizes that we just have to do things as, um, you know, as effective as we can, even if it may be more labor intensive, even if it takes more time. But that's, um, that's something that for communities like ours, um, we have to, de to define and tailor the way we communicate with folks. So that is something that we are going to take away, not just on, you know, uh, delivery of, you know, information, vaccine and testing, but it uh, is going to go towards rental assistance, towards business grants, towards resources that we know are going to follow this pandemic that is really an economic crisis. Um, you know, people who are just transitioning back to work, uh, you know, transitioning children back to school. Uh, we realize that these lessons that we learned during the pandemic they're going to continue in other efforts as we communicate with our neighbors and residents. Mayor Vicente Sarmiento of Santa Ana, California, thank you very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.